You could be seated. And if you would, grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Today we come to a parable that, in my opinion, illustrates Jesus' teaching in Luke's gospel very, very well, perhaps the best. Jesus' teaching is about the kingdom. More narrowly, it's about the gospel of the kingdom. And I think this parable shows us how some receive it and how some miss it. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look at Luke 18 and verse 9. Just six verses here. Luke tells us that Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's what he said. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a parable which helps answer the questions, who is justified? That's the word in verse 14, justified. Who's accepted? Who is right with God? Who's going to heaven, if you like that? Or the word in verse 9 is righteous. Who really is righteous? What is that kind of real righteousness? What is true righteousness? How and when should we feel justified? It starts with two very different men. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, even people who've never opened a Bible have some idea in mind when they hear the word Pharisee. We use it today in contemporary culture, even secular culture. Someone who's a Pharisee is self-righteous and hypocritical. And that's pretty accurate for what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said the Pharisees in his day were self-righteous and hypocritical. But Jesus' negative assessment of the Pharisees is, uh, well, it was new. It was surprising. It was shocking to those who heard Jesus in the first century. It wouldn't have been the common street-level assessment of the Pharisees. We already think that the Pharisees are bad guys. But those hearing this parable for the first time wouldn't have thought that. The Pharisees were the most popular group of religious leaders, kind of the most popular party of religious leaders in that day. They were especially liked among the working class because the Pharisees were hardworking. They were good businessmen. They were usually honest businessmen. They were nationalists. They were God-fearers. They believed that God's blessing would soon return to Israel if it were more pure. So they were concerned for the purity of the, of the law and a strict interpretation of the law. These are the conservatives, of course. They interpreted the law in the most strict, literal way, but yet they also were not, I don't know, religious old farts. 
They were also kind of cutting edge because they were interested in giving an update reapplication of the law into everyday living. They were concerned to see the law get applied to everyday life. They were kind of, for their day, cutting edge religious scholars. And they generally practiced what they preached. They were disciplined folk. They were aggressive and stringent in their obedience to the law. They wouldn't have thought to be hypocrites by those who were hearing Jesus that first time. So whether we know the term Pharisee from the Bible or from modern culture, like your boss says, oh, don't be a Pharisee, and it means don't be self-righteous, don't be hypocritical. We have a negative opinion of the Pharisees, but those in the first century didn't. They thought, if anyone's going to heaven, it's going to be a Pharisee. Who's made right with God? Who is in right standing with God? Well, top of the list has to be a Pharisee, if anyone's on the list at all. Tax collector is also similarly different from our hearing than those in the first century. When we hear tax collector, we think IRS agent which sounds like extra starch in pocket protector, right? I mean, it, it, that's harmless, though. You might think geek, but you're not going to think he's a troublemaker. In fact, if anything, he's not a troublemaker. Or, or if you know the Bible, you know Zacchaeus in Luke 19 was a tax collector. Well, that doesn't sound so bad because Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> wee little man was he. He's the guy who climbed up in a sycamore tree, right? That's the song we learn in... In preschool, in kindergarten, Zacchaeus doesn't sound so bad. People who are we aren't trouble, right? He's just a little guy. He can't be trouble. But in the first century times, tax collectors were hated above any other class or kind of people. Here's why they were hated. They were often Jews, but they were thought to be traitors because they're working for the Roman occupation in their land. They're Jews, and yet they're helping to fund, they're raising the money for the brutal Roman army. The famously brutal, conquesting Roman army. They're the ones who are putting the money in the coffer for that Roman army that just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. These tax collectors were the one who were the street-level representation of Rome to the people. Maybe maybe the only street-level representation. In other words, you may not know a governor. You may not know a, a mayor or something like that. You may not know any political official except you know the local tax collector because he has to come around and collect. They were personally dishonest extremely and famously corrupt. They were always taking extra from the people over and above the Roman taxes to make it their own. So tax collector, as a phrase, was synonymous with robber. There's an ancient piece of graffiti that says, all our tax collectors, all our robbers. They got rich from stealing from the people, even stealing from their own people. And they were known for their wild, extravagant living. They were known for their parties. They were known for drunkenness. They were known for gluttony. They were even known for orgies. These are not good guys. In fact, I don't know if there's any contemporary equivalent. Because there's nothing in our society today that's so bad that it encompasses all these different facets of evil. 
and, and sneakiness and, and, and harm. The closest thing I can think of to a tax collector in our day would be someone who works for maybe a, uh, a Mexican drug cartel. Can you imagine being on a plane? It has to be first class, but next to you, you say, what do you do for work? And the guy says, I run a drug cartel. <laughs> what? I mean, you know that means he kills people. You know that means that he does drugs and deals drugs and, and he's, he hurts people all over the place. It hurts society all over the place. But even that doesn't really capture the odium and seriousness, the heinousness of what the first century tax collector was like. So anyone here in this story, Jesus is telling a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. You've got to think, good guy, bad guy. But Luke gives us a hint that there's a surprise coming. Look at verse 9. He says right up front that this is a parable about those who think that they're righteous and view others with contempt. He's telling us there's a surprise in the story. This is going to be one of those upside-down things, and Luke often does this. He shows us oftentimes that there's a good man and a bad man, and at the end of the story, the good man is damned, and the bad man is saved. You see it all over the place. The guy you don't think is going to be the hero of the story is the hero of the story. You see it chapter 4 of Luke. Listen to these. Let me just go through a survey of Luke. In chapter 4, Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor, spiritually poor, those who know that they're spiritually impoverished. In chapter 5, one of the first converts is a tax collector, Jewish tax collector named Matthew. And this Jewish tax collector is not only one of the first converts, he's one of the apostles, and he writes the first book of the Bible. You wouldn't see that coming. In chapter 7, it says that Jesus had the reputation of eating and drinking with sinners. He was a friend with tax collectors and sinners. He received them, it says. In the same chapter, he received the worship of and forgave a woman who was a what? A prostitute. A prostitute. In chapter 14, Jesus said that when the end time heavenly banquet comes, who's going to be there? The crippled, the lame, the blind. I think spiritual descriptions. The spiritually crippled, the spiritually lame, the spiritually blind are the ones who are going to be there to dine with him. Not those, he says, who are able to repay. Not those who think that they should be there because... Well, because they're noble, because they're good, because they have something to give back. In chapter 15, it's the lost sheep that Jesus goes after. He goes after the wayward sheep, not the 99 righteous ones who think they need no repentance. In chapter 15, it's the parable of the prodigal, where it's the wayward son at the end who's in the house dining with the father, accepted by the father, not the stubborn Selfish, self-righteous older brother who refuses to celebrate at his brother's return. Chapter 16, it's the leprous Lazarus who's eating with Abraham in heaven. Not the rich man. 
The rich man who wasn't that bad. I mean, the description there in chapter 16 of the rich man is not that he's always doing evil, except that he's partying all day. He's living in comfort all day. But he's a, probably a good, average, rich guy. And he's not in heaven. Lazarus is. Chapter 17, it's the Samaritan leper. Not the nine Jewish lepers, but the Samaritan leper who's the one who's forgiven at the end of the story. It all describes what Jesus said. Back in chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, I'll say it again. What? Jesus came as a physician to those who know that they're sick. He didn't come as a physician to those who think that they're well. We're all sick, but some think that they're well. Those who know they're sick know they need a physician. Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. So we've been calling this series Righteous Sinners. Our study of Luke is called Righteous Sinners. And that's a word play that's right from the book of Luke. In Luke, righteous is like righteous in air quotes, finger quotes. Quote, unquote, righteous. They think that they're righteous even though they're not. And sinners are those who, like this tax collector in chapter 18 are famously sinful. They're professional sinners. They know themselves to be sinners because their conscience tells them so, but also because society tells them so. Everyone around them tells them, reminds them constantly, they're sinners. They know themselves to be sinners. So Luke's whole message is that the righteous really are sinners, even though they won't own up to it. And the sinners really can be made righteous by grace in Christ. And they can be made righteous by grace in Christ, partly because they know themselves to be sinners. That's what this parable is about. I'll give it to you up front, because Luke gives it to us up front. That's what he means in verse 9. Two very different men, now two very different prayers. Two very different prayers. You see the Pharisee's prayer? In verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, there's some good things about this guy and about his prayer here. We know it ends bad for him. But don't yet let that taint the way this is unfolding in the story. This prayer isn't totally bad. I mean, for one, these things are commendable. He isn't a thief. Last time I checked, that's a good thing. You know, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't steal. He's not an adulterer. That's a good thing. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Don't commit adultery. He even fasts two times a week, verse 12 says. And he pays tithes on all that he gets. I mean, food and money are the things that, boy, we say, well, just don't touch those, right? Give me my food. I don't want to give a lot of money. But this guy is going after sin at the level of food and money, things that we, we treasure, we, we really want to protect. And more than just giving one-tenth of his money, that's what a tithe means. He gives one-tenth of everything that comes in, everything he gets. I mean, Jesus said that the Pharisees were known for tithing of their mint and spice. So what this means, if this guy is tithing on everything that comes in, it means a guy gives him a stick of gum, he gives a tenth of it to the poor. I mean, you know, he's, he gets a, a free box of Tic Tacs, he's going to give one-tenth of those Tic Tacs to the poor. 
He gives left and right. This is above and beyond religion. This is a guy with a study Bible. Maybe an ESV study Bible, the really big one. This is a guy who's first to pray in his home group. This is a guy who uh, you see with the offering envelope every Sunday. You just know he's a frequent giver as you see it. This is a guy who's known for what he believes and his boldness about it. This is a guy who leads things in ministry. This is a good guy. And he gives credit to God for all this. You notice that? His prayer isn't much different than some of what you'd find in the Psalms. You can find in Psalm 119 things like, I thank you that I'm not like them. I love your law. I hate them, but I love your law. I will follow your law. I will keep your law. Haven't you prayed something like that before? Lord, thank you. I'm not like that. Haven't you said, Lord, thank you. I have this wife and not that one. Huh? Haven't you said, as you've seen people in sin and you've seen the consequence, the painful consequences of sin, you've said sometimes, Lord, thank you that you've kept me from the pain of that. Is that wrong? I don't think it's always wrong. I don't think it's totally wrong. Then what is wrong with this guy's prayer? Well, let me give you five things that are wrong with this Pharisee's prayer. First, his righteousness is based on externals, externals alone. There's nothing of the heart here. There's nothing of emotion here. There's nothing of the mind here. It's all action. It's all what he does. It's all what he can, he can do. External. Secondly, his justification is based on comparisons. Lord, I thank you I'm not like those people. Those people. Even that guy, he gets specific. He, he looks around and goes, thank you, I'm not like um, that guy. That tax collector. Augustine in the 5th century said this Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean, of, clean bill of health as in comparing it with the disease of others. You could always find someone who's a worse sinner. You know, I thank you, God, I didn't kill as many people as Hitler. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know? Lord, I thank you that I didn't have as many girlfriends as, well, I won't even say his name, but he's playing today. Uh, comparisons don't help a bit. They're not right. Third, his righteousness was based on what he was not. Or the don'ts of the law. Verse 11, he says, I have not. I am not. This is what you avoid. He focuses on what to avoid. And there are more things in the law than what we avoid. Fourth, his righteousness is based on arbitrary laws. He's adding to God's law. Did you notice that? God's word doesn't say fast twice a week. It says fasting is good. It doesn't say how much. But he set it up as a law, a kind of law that you can check the box for. I don't know about you, but I, I find myself drawn to that kind of law. I find myself frustrated sometimes with God's laws that are a bit fuzzy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. All right, well, I, 
Did I do that in the last hour? I don't know, kind of. It's not a yes or no box checking kind of thing. Glorify the Lord whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it to God's glory. So, you know, when I watch hockey this afternoon, like we all will, right? Um, I'll try to do it to God's glory. And afterwards, will I know if I've done it to God's glory? Not exactly. I'd much rather have a box checking kind of religion, wouldn't you? Get up and read the Bible for 15 minutes. 16 is well done. 14 is sin. I'd love, okay, I can do that and I can feel good about it. But God hasn't given us those kind of laws on purpose so that we don't have a box-checking kind of religion. We don't, at the end of the day, feel good because we've checked all the boxes. But this guy wants to make that kind of religion. So he sets up an arbitrary standard. Fasting, that's good. Uh, uh, let's make it two times a week. That way I'll know if I've done it. And when I've done it, I'll feel that I'm justified. And fifth, there's no mention of any sin. No mention of need in this prayer. There's no confession. There's no repentance at all. And yet we know that the majority of prayers in the Bible have confession. Need, repentance is part of them, no small part of them. In short, this guy's righteousness, his justification is based on himself. Four times he says, I, 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 I. He focuses on himself and what he's done so much that it's almost a prayer of self-congratulation. It's a reflection of exactly what Luke told us this parable was about. Verse 9. Some trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt. His prayer models that well. David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s, was religious before he was converted. And here's how he recounted it later in his famous diary. When I had been fasting, praying, obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it for my own glory to feel I was worthy. As long as I was doing all this to earn my salvation, I was doing nothing for God, all for me. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and to be my own Savior. I was not worshiping Him, but using Him. You see, the Pharisee in this story, this parable, isn't lost Despite the fact that he's good, it's his goodness that is the very problem. His righteousness is the very thing that's getting in the way of being made right with God. And that's why Spurgeon entitled one of his messages on this parable, Too Good to be Saved. Some of you are too good to be saved. We think that being bad is the problem. I'm too bad to be saved. I'm too sinful to be saved. Too wicked to be saved. But, but you see, this guy's goodness is the thing getting in the way of his salvation. So John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress in the 17th century, said of this parable that the Pharisee's whole righteousness was sinful. His whole righteousness, righteousness is sinful. Which is exactly what Isaiah 64.6 says. That our righteous deeds 
are as filthy rags. The very best we do, not the worst we do, not our sin is like a filthy rag, but our good things are like filthy rags. The tax collector's prayer couldn't be more different. He stands at a distance, it says in verse 13. The Pharisee stood by himself. That's probably the best way of translating where the Pharisee's standing and how he's praying. Verse 11, he stood by himself because he didn't think he was one of them, one of the masses. He thought he was distinct. He thought he was better. His prayer was better. But the tax collector stands a far way off for a different reason. Because he thinks himself unworthy. He can't even look up to heaven. He can't even look up to heaven. Have you ever had that kind of guilt, that kind of shame, where you don't want to look up even though you know you have to? In high school, I made fake report cards for several semesters. <laughs> I even stole the report card paper from the counseling office and... Then I found a friend that had a, a printer that was exactly like that at the school. So it, it, was, it was perfect. It was a perfect forgery. And what's worse is I made these fake report cards because my mom and dad came up with this plan that they'll get me a car when I turn 16 if I have a 3.0 average. But recently I'd been getting several 1.8s, 2.0s, that kind of thing. And so rather than not get the car, I just made fake report cards. Until the day I was called into the counseling office and mom was there holding the report cards. And I couldn't look up. I mean, I, I know, I was sitting there thinking, I feel like a stupid four-year-old. How come I can't look up? But I couldn't look up. I couldn't. They were talking to me and I was talking and I was stuck looking at my shoes out of shame for what I had done. Ever had that kind of shame where you, you can't look up? He doesn't look up to heaven. In fact, he beats his chest. He, he hits himself. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Literally in the Greek, it's God, be merciful to me, the sinner. No comparisons here. As far as he's concerned, he's the only sinner. It doesn't matter if he's better than that sinner. He's the sinner. He's the only sinner of concern as he talks to God. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The only sinner I know about and the only sinner I'm praying you would care about. By the way, notice that this is kind of a short sinner's prayer. We sometimes in different church traditions or church cultures talk about the sinner's prayer. Did you know that this is the closest thing we have to the sinner's prayer in the Bible? Uh, you may not know about this, but a lot of booklets that preach the gospel at the end of it will say, say this prayer. And it's a prayer written out. Or sometimes a preacher at the end of a sermon will say, say this prayer with me. And then you say it. And then at the end, I don't know why it's at the end. It should be at the beginning. But at the end they say, well, if you just said that, you just became a Christian. I think you should say that at the beginning before they start saying the prayer. But that's, that's another thing. The point is this, is that some people trust in their own righteousness to be saved, and some people trust in the fact that they said this formulaic prayer that isn't in the Bible to be saved. Now, I know I'm stepping on some toes, but those are my toes too. Uh, that's my story. 
I grew up in one of those church traditions that said, say this prayer, and if you said it, you're a Christian. And then when I doubted it and went forward and talked to Deacon Potato Head again, he, he said, Ryan, come on, you said that prayer. I was there that day. You're a Christian. And I would think, man, but I just don't feel anything for the Lord. And I, uh, Man, I, I, I'm a hypocrite. I'm two different people. I'm one guy at the public school, another guy at church. I'm faking it. There's got to be something different. Something real. And so, you know, if you grew up like I did, you know about this. You, if you're going on a scary roller coaster, you'll say the prayer again. <laughs> right? Just, just in case. Uh, if you come across a better written prayer or maybe a longer version, you'll say that one just to cover that part of your butt. You know, you just try that one. Um, maybe that one will work. And I don't, maybe you got saved saying one of those prayers. Maybe you repeated something at the end of a sermon with the pastor and then you really were converted because you heard the biblical gospel and that prayer merely reflected what was already in the heart. For me, it was actually the means of me getting frustrated and looking finally to the Lord and the Lord alone. Because I finally said at the age of 17, God, if you don't do something besides just make me say this prayer, if you don't just forgive me, I have no hope. I, I will be damned unless you just save me. I don't know how you're going to save me. Just save me. And I think that's probably a pretty good sinner's prayer. Because it was finally my heart talking to God and, and finally me feeling my helplessness. The point is this, is that it's possible to utter the same exact words as this tax collector here and never have experienced saving helplessness, saving faith. I pray it's the real thing for you, but don't let it be true for you that you've just uttered these words and you think it's true. Examine your heart, examine more than that. This guy says, be merciful to me, verse 13. And merciful here is an interesting word. It's not the usual word for mercy. This means make atonement for me. Be propitiated for me. Propitiated? Really? That word's there? Yeah, it's a Bible word, a Bible theology word that has to do with a sin being covered. God's wrath being quenched. It's an Old Testament word Referring to the Old Testament sacrifice system in the temple there. Where on the mercy seat, blood would be poured out on top of the mercy seat as a symbol of God covering our sin. The tax collector here is knowing better than just to ask that God would ignore his sin. He's asking for his sin to be paid for. For his sin to be covered of course, that points to the cross where Jesus did this very thing of covering our sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice that there's no mention of anything good that this guy's done. It's so different than the Pharisee. This guy doesn't mention anything good that he's done. I'm sure he's done some good. For one, he's at the temple praying. You could mention that, but he doesn't. Because there's nothing of good that he can commend to the Lord as far as why he should be justified or what true righteousness is. Remember, our righteousness, our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So again, Bunyan, John Bunyan said, godly men are afraid of their own righteousness. Hmm. Are you? Well, it's no different than our hymnody. 
Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Two very different men, two very different prayers, and thirdly, two very different destinies. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. Justified? Yeah. It's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous. It's a judicial word. It's not just he he went home forgiven. It's more than that. He went home absolved. But more than that, it means the judge said, not just you're innocent, but you're righteous. How can he be made righteous? Only by someone else's righteousness. This is so clear in Romans 4, 5, where Paul talks about how we don't work but we trust the God who justifies the wicked. Work here is contrasted with faith. We don't work our way to God. We believe the God who justifies the wicked. Now, justifies the wicked. If justify means declare righteous, that means here that God, the judge, declares righteous what is really wicked. How is that? It has to be based on someone else's righteousness. Because Christ is our righteousness and we've received him through faith, then God declares us to be righteous, not because we are in ourselves righteous, we are in of ourselves wicked, but he declares us righteous based on what the reformers called an alien righteousness. It's outside of us. It's from someone else. It's not our own. But yet, he treats us as if it's our own. Oh. So John Bunyan again. Can I quote Bunyan one more time? I will anyway. He said, we must be made righteous before we can do righteousness. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show us how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to show us how God's grace breaks into our lives and saves us from the sin and the brokenness that otherwise we would never be able to overcome. Religion says, if you obey, then you'll be accepted, justified. The gospel says, if you are absolutely accepted by grace and you're sure that you're accepted, then you will be free to obey him. You will want to obey him. No longer slaves, but friends, Jesus said. More than friends, we're sons and daughters. Now, let's see if I can bring this home to you because not everyone's in the same place. Are you a tax collector type? Are you one who knows your sin? You know your trouble. You know it because your, your own heart speaks that to you at night when you go to sleep. But you know it too because everyone around you tells you, just like the tax collector, they tell you you're a sinner. They, they tell you you're trouble. They tell you you need help and you know you need help. Have you now... Come to the end of yourself. 
Have you yet given up on looking for acceptance in people, in society, at work? Have you yet given up on finding acceptance even in yourself? So you've tried the self-esteem thing and you know it doesn't work. Looking inward and finding emptiness becomes a vacuum of emptiness. It becomes a cycle of emptiness. You look in, you see emptiness, you feel empty, you feel more empty. What do you do? You look in for more and you find more emptiness and feel more emptiness. Are you ready for Jesus? Do what this tax collector did. Isn't this guy proof enough that anyone can be saved, anyone can be forgiven? The grace of Christ reaches down to the lowliest. We don't even have a category in our society for how low and wicked a guy like a tax collector would be in the first century. So why do you doubt? Come to him. Or maybe you're a Pharisee type. Maybe you wonder if a Pharisee can even be saved. They can. It doesn't say so here in Luke 18, but they can. Let me show you where. Philippians 3, Paul tells us about his conversion, and Paul was a Pharisee. I think it's important for us to see his autobiographical account, you could say, because otherwise maybe there's no hope for Pharisees here. Maybe you say, those words, rather than the other. That man went home justified, but not the Pharisee. Those are frightening words. Listen to Philippians 3. Where Paul says that Christians are those who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, in their works, in their doing. Paul says, if anyone should have the ability to have confidence in their flesh, in their doing, he should. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he even persecuted the church because he thought it was wrong and against God's plan. As to the righteousness in the law, he was, humanly speaking, relatively speaking, blameless. But verse 7 says, But whatever things were gained to me, these things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's thinking in accounting terms. There's the loss column and there's the gain column. And I used to treat these good things I did, these religious accolades I had, in the gain column. But I've come to put them over here, not in the neutral column or just away from the gain column. I put them in the loss column because they were a way of subversion. Converting God's grace. They were a way of bypassing a Savior. They were a way of being my own Savior. They weren't good things that don't save. They weren't irrelevant things. They were sin. Paul goes on to say not only were they sin, they were rubbish. He uses a word Some translations have dung, except we don't say that. We don't say dung too much unless you work on a farm. He says, I counted those things as rubbish, except you don't say rubbish unless you're in England. Well, he counted them as trash. Yeah, but that's the word has more to do with excrement than it does stuff you just throw away. Paul uses a very strong word. Some have said it's close to a cuss word. Paul says he counted that stuff as crap. 
Maybe he used stronger language than that. But he, he used a strong street language to say, I hate that stuff. Ryan, are you saying good things are now bad things? They are if they're a means of getting God, if they're a means of earning grace, if they're a means of feeling accepted, feeling justified. You see, Christian, you're not done fighting the temptation to trust in your own righteousness and viewing others with contempt. This is an ongoing thing. This parable is for, yes, getting saved, and it's a parable for further growing in Christ and further fighting sin and self-sufficiency and pride. Don't you dare think, as I'm tempted to do, thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. See how sneaky that is? To think that you've gotten in, you're forgiven, and now you say, oh, yes, thank God I'm not like those Pharisees who list what they do, who have boxes to check, who, who feel like their acceptance with God goes up and down based on how long their prayers go. Thank God I'm not like them. Yeah, you're just a different kind of Pharisee, though. It's not about comparisons. Christians are to grow, but they're to grow low. So the holier we get, probably the less holier we feel. The stronger we are in Christ, the weaker, Paul said, we feel. The more we see of our sin, it's partly because we've gotten closer to him and he's reflected our sin. We are to grow in further seeing our need and sensing our need and feeling it in our bones. We're to grow. Grow low. This man went to his house justified. So now we can go home. Not right now, but in a little bit. And we can go home in peace. Now all of a sudden, things make sense. Food becomes not an idol, not something necessarily to avoid not something to purge out of our lives as a symbol of our devotion to him but something to enjoy so listen to Ecclesiastes 9-7 which says eat your bread in happiness go eat your bread in happiness drink your wine with a cheerful heart for God has already approved your deeds he's already accepted you in Christ if he's accepted you now go celebrate and talk of this celebration talk of his grace spread it to others there are many who don't know some are Pharisees some are tax collectors but they're just like us they're sinners sinners who can be made righteous in Christ.